0: I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness.
1: If you don't discuss, it just eats away, eats away, eats away at you.
0: I never talked
1: about it with anybody.
0: The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret.
1: If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick,
0: literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you the story. If
1: I could have known that you and I were alike... I would have had so much more hope. You realize you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's show is an interview with poet, author, and teacher Catherine Murray about healing from loss through writing. Catherine has a really difficult story of losing her son to cancer at age six and a half. Most of us won't experience a loss this difficult, but it's one of the things that parents fear the most, so much so that even thinking about it is something we avoid. It's hard to imagine how we would ever cope. But this conversation with Catherine back in 2011 gave me a whole new sense of how it is possible to recover from all kinds of losses. She found a way to heal that kept her heart open and alive. For her, that way was writing poetry. She now gives talks about poetry and healing around the country and leads writing workshops for those wanting to heal from all kinds of grief and loss. Here's my conversation with Catherine Murray, which I started by asking her to read one of her poems. And just a side note before we begin, one of the lessons I learned from Catherine is that when someone has suffered a big loss, they want it acknowledged, which means for a lot of people, they want to be asked about it, because many people don't bring it up. When I listen to this interview, I hear how careful I'm being, tiptoeing around the loss, trying to be sensitive. But people who are grieving are already thinking about it. By acknowledging the loss, we're not adding to the pain. We're helping them feel seen and validated. This interview was a gift to me, and I hope it's made me a better interviewer. I want to start right in by hearing one of your poems about John.
0: The name of this poem is Exquisite. I wonder if I knew then that in those days I was swimming through something so exquisite that while we held the terror and hope so close in among us, we were blessed. I must have known that watching him sicken and waste into a tiny old man, watching him gather every bit of strength to try to play a final game with his brothers or try yet again to stand on his stork legs, made me take each moment as it came with desperate greed that was somehow kin to gratitude and peace. As I carried him, just stalking as of bone, from the wooden hut down to see the horses or the fig tree, or up the hill to lie down on the warm earth together to gaze at the drying valley below, as I held him in my lap while I cooked at the kitchen fire or carefully placed him on cushions just out of reach of the angry sparks, as I trundled him down to the village strapped into the bike seat with rags tied round his legs against the bumps, I bit back my sorrow and fear as his brightness and brilliance shone. I allowed nothing but strength and cheer and encouragement to show, only letting the surface crack and the tears seep through, once or twice, with him. We had no choice but to watch and love with all our hearts, it pulled us tight together, like the puckered seam at the top of the drawstring bag keeping safe its precious gem beneath. Now my life is car and house and work and bills, and the other two in school all day, My friends must think I'm happier, but I'm not sure. The suffering is less razor sharp, just dull and mundane, an involuntary trade. Now there is nothing to make me rise each day, preparing myself for the fight, for the impossible work of watching my child negotiate with death. So
1: it seems like it might be worth hearing a little bit about John before we talk about the poem. Will you tell me a little bit about when he was diagnosed and and what happened leading up to his death?
0: Well, John had just turned five um, when we just started to suspect something wasn't quite right. Um, First, we thought it was anemia, and then after various tests and different visits to the doctor, we were told in Thailand that he had a very rare form of leukemia, AML-M6. And uh, the doctor told us to return immediately to the US so that he could have a very aggressive chemo and a Mm -hmm. bone marrow transplant. And after some pretty stressful conversation, we uh, took his advice and went back. And um, he actually did really well with the chemo. Um, And we were in Seattle for nine months while he had the chemo and the transplant. And then he seemed to be doing well. Um, And the doctors, you know, one day just called and said, well, it looks like the cancer's back. And when this happens, people don't survive. And it was really a matter of weeks, you know, a couple months that they thought um, that he would survive. So I thought, well, this is the end and we need to be good patients and stay here and give him the morphine and what he needs. But uh, my husband was really wise and said, no, we're going to go back to Thailand and fight. So we did return to Thailand and, um, he, and, you know, helped him with traditional treatment, um, uh, vitamins and, and exercise and meditation. And he did quite well. Um, but he did after nine months, he did die. So.
1: Hmm. And so this poem exquisite is written during those last nine months when you, well,
0: it's, it's after his death. I mean, I wrote the poem after his death, but yes, it talks about actually, this is, I'm really thinking of the last couple of months when, um, I'd say two months before his death, the doctors had really given up on him. And, you know, every doctor just said, what, why are you trying to fight this? You know, you need to give up and it's, he's going to die. But we really felt like we just heard, you know, you always hear stories of people who do survive despite the most dire predictions. So we said, well, we're going to do the best that we can to fight for him. So he wanted to return to, um, to this very remote village where we had lived and, um, that's where he wanted to be. And I knew that Uh, that that would be the best place for him to get well, but I also at the same time knew it would be the best place for him to die.
1: And in the poem, you talk about how you tried to be so strong for him and so Mm. positive and Mm. so, and just a few times, Mm. you know, showing him. Um, Did John know that he was dying?
0: Did he talk about it? He, he knew he was fighting something that could be fatal. Um, Our so he did talk about that but he i think he really believed that it made sense to fight as hard as he could so he didn't talk about you know if i die or when i die you know he really just talked about getting well and um he (laughs) poor kid he had to you know drink all these bitter vegetable juices and you know he really worked hard but we felt like and that was a decision that we made and it was hard for me to make that decision you know i sometimes wanted to just give up and say have some ice cream, you know, and, um, but I felt like it was his right to, to keep fighting until the very end. So that's what he did.
1: Mm. Sounds like he really knew what he wanted. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I recently heard an interview with another poet, Marie Howe, and which she talked about poems at the heart of them, having something kind of unspeakable that the poem is finding a way to express. And I was curious for you You know, the death of a child in some ways is unspeakable in our culture. No one wants to talk about it. And does it feel like his death is unspeakable? Does it feel like the poems allow you to say something you can't say in another way?
0: I think, yeah, I think, you know, just the life that that we live or the life that I live, I don't think there is a lot of space for me to talk about the depth of the grief. Um, I mean, I make space and I have wonderful people around me who are willing to hear that. But it does give me a chance to to express something, I don't know, some very, very painful grief.
1: And how long was it after Chan died that, before you could actually start writing?
0: I think it was pretty quick. I had been writing a lot in my journal, uh, uh, right, you know, for those last few months when he was sick and dying, because I just, that was sort of my sanity, the way I kept my sanity was to write. Um, and then right after he died, I think it was a couple days before I went back to that, because I that's how I coped. And the poetry came pretty soon after that, I would say within, I don't know, a week or two.
1: Mm. And tell me what it's like for you to write a poem like this.
0: I think what usually happens is I spend so much of my life running around and running away from the grief and running away from the pain that writing is, it's a discipline. It's Susan Conley says, you know, ass in chair. It's like you make yourself sit down and just write. And the reason that that's so fruitful for me is that I'm, I'm always trying to escape, often trying to escape these hard feelings. But when I sit down and I, I just say to myself, okay, it's time to write a poem. And it's really about stopping and going down deep and saying what's going on, and, and it comes out in words. Um, I, don't, I don't really put a lot of effort into think. I mean, the words just come. I don't, I don't really work too hard at form and that sort of thing. And are you are you actively grieving while you write? I mean, are you are you weeping while you write? Not usually. I think that's why I think that's the nice thing about about writing for me is that there's this this space between the the sadness and the emotion and the the part that's upsetting and then the the everyday action of typing on the keyboard and it's there's something that, that about the tension between those two places that allows I don't know. Allows something fruitful to come up. Is writing poetry healing for you? Is it helpful? Oh, how, definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd love to spend some time with that. Tell me how that happens for you.
0: How is it? Well, it's it's fruitful because I think for me, healing, um, healing from my son's death and healing from anything, but this has been you know the the strongest, biggest event in my life. Healing from my son's death has been. I just think that for me, the only way to heal is to stop and feel the pain. And, and that's, at the beginning, that was excruciating. It was, you know, I could really only do it in very, very tiny milliseconds because it was, the grief was so huge and so overwhelming that I, you know, I kept myself busy with knitting or making the fire or, you know, doing the daily things I had to do. But I would force myself because I could see, I could feel, it felt like a concrete wall going up around my heart. And I I knew that was wrong. You know, I knew that that would be the end of me and my family if I let that happen. So I forced myself to stop. And the way it worked for me was to call a friend at home on the phone and, you know, say, I need to talk about this. And then I could look at the look at the overwhelming pain for a short time. So the way that the poetry works with that is that uh, I don't have to, you know, part of my grieving is about counseling and and getting being able to cry with people but another part is the poetry is sitting still with the feeling because if you're running away from it you're not healing from it but if i stop and i let myself feel it and i notice how what do i miss what do i miss about john what is so hard what is so painful then the words come and i feel like that's healing
1: that you talked about this interesting space between the sort of deep feeling and then that space of the mundane keyboard mm-hmm. and how it kind of gives you the room almost to find words for it and is that space also helpful because you're sitting still you're you're
0: attending to it but you're also not drowning exactly yeah yeah and it's the it's the the dailiness the tactile nature of typing on the keyboard it's sitting in the chair that helps me see I'm not drowning. I'm still here. It's not like you kind of close your eyes and just let yourself get lost in that pain. But I have to, I have to, I don't know, somehow by verbalizing it, it somehow keeps me from drowning.
1: One of the themes in this series on telling difficult stories has been about the value of confiding in others Mm. about difficult things Mm. or finding, putting into language stories that are so emotional or so physical. Mm. And, um, you know, there's even this research thinking that about something about transferring grief and emotion into language is sort of moving it from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere Mm. of the brain, and that when Mm. you hold it in a more bilateral way, you know, there's a whole bunch of Mm -hmm. stuff about that. But does it feel that way to you, too? I mean, is there a way that the grief kind of sits in you in a calmer way after the poem?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I I was thinking as you were speaking, is that... You know part of me thinks, well, maybe i'm when I write a poem, maybe I'm just pushing it further away. Maybe I'm just intellectualizing it. and but I really t- have to trust my instincts and my hunch, and it's after I write a poem about the grief, I feel so much more healed and settled and calm, and I just know that it's right. It's just an intuitive thing that I know I'm not intellectualizing it and pushing it away. I'm really going in there and processing it. and I do I don't want to I don't want to mislead and have it sound like. I've healed because of poetry, I mean that's been uh, that's been helpful, and that's been part of it, but much more so it's been uh, you know being able to cry and, cry and cry and cry and cry and cry and cry and sob with my family and my friends and my counselors and so i you know I don't want it to sound like oh, I just read poetry and you feel better right. I'd love to hear another poem now if we could um this one I wrote in let's see two thousand five so it was this looks like it was just a a year and a week after Chun's death. And it's just the, word, the thoughts that were going through my mind, so I wrote it down. The baseball cap you wore to keep your bald little head warm wears a layer of dust. Your younger brother is growing into your favorite clothes. Even my pen, the nice fat plastic one I got from the Cancer Care Alliance, one of the transplant perks, is running out of ink. I try again to work out the calculations... Born in 98, diagnosed at 5, lived a year and a half after that. Did you really die that long ago? I wonder if time and distance are proportionally related. Is it true that the longer you're dead, the farther you are away from us? I doubt it. That sounds too simple and linear for this universe. But the palpability of my memory slips. I rely more on photographs than before to bring you back to me. I suspect the relationship is not proportional. I suspect you're still as close as our hearts can bear to hold you.
1: Hearing that poem, it it captures so much what I hear uh, people say, which is that with the passage of time after the death, there's this fear of losing, not being able to keep the person alive in their memory, you know, losing, the the image, needing to use photographs, almost like a whole other layer of loss. But you're proposing something quite interesting and different at the end, and I'd love to hear more what, what your sense is about that, about you're as close as our hearts can bear to hold you. Say more about that.
0: Well, you know, I think as time passes and I've done all this healing work, that in daily life I do feel um, it's easier to 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 not remember you so much not remember Chani so much and and to go on and live my life and be busy with what I'm doing um but I think it's it's also that I learn maybe that I learned that it's it's painful to keep him so close so there's this sort of the reward that I get when I do bring him in close when I do open up my heart and say I know you're right here you know then he is right there. He's right there. You know, he's just no farther away than he was when he was in my arms. Um, but to do that makes me cry, you know, and because it brings back how much I miss him and how close we were and what a huge loss we suffered. Um, so it's just, it's too hard to do it often at this point in my healing, I suppose as time goes on, that might change, but
1: so it's this sort of terrible paradox in a way. It's like you can have him close, but it's so painful too. It's almost easier to have him not be so close, even though that's the
0: very thing you're mourning. Although I'm not sure. I mean, it, it's it's a sweet pain. You know, it's not just painful. It's, it's well worth doing it. But it's a matter of remembering how important it is to stop and remember and really feel how close he still is, even if it means tears. I mean, because it means tears, it's the right thing to do because it's, it is. In a way, I mean, it's sort of what we're all up against is
1: that we always love another mortal. The person we're loving is always Mm. at risk of dying. So there's Mm. such danger in our love. Yeah, so true. I want to ask you a little bit more about, you know, ways that writing poems can be helpful to you. And I'm curious, you know, it's clearly very important for you personally. Is writing poems also healing in the sense of, the relational aspect, like sharing them with other people, has it helped other people kind of get what you're going through? Does it, does it
0: help as a way to communicate? Um, I think from what I, I haven't shared them very much. And what I hear from people who have heard them is that it is helpful for them, but that's definitely not the motivation to write them. I never wrote them expecting to share them at all. Definitely. I mean, Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I never thought I would show anybody. I mean, it's so private and I thought, oh, they're not very good. And, you know, I, it just never occurred to me to that I would be writing po- these poems and sharing them.
1: And if you do you think if you had thought you'd be sharing them, it would have actually made it harder to write them or they would have been more self-conscious? Or... Yeah, yes. So you've got to keep telling yourself you're not going to show anyone, even though, of course, you I, well, will I publish still,
0: them. I never think about showing them. <laughs> so, I mean, when I'm writing them, it's just... When I'm writing them, it's just a very internal experience. Yeah. So...
1: You know, I've heard you say in other contexts that there is a part of you that is longing to tell this story. Mm. And I'd love to hear more about that longing. What is the thing that you're wanting to happen in the
0: telling? Well, I think there are different levels to it. Um, One is I want people to know about Sean because he was amazing and, you know, I thought he just fought so bravely and he was very inspiring. And by the end, I just felt like he was a brilliant boy. You know, he said he was, uh, he knew how to love really well. And so those are those sorts of things I want to share with people because I think it's inspiring and I want to honor him. But I also think, you know, I also feel like if people, you know, if there are people who are, who have recently suffered a loss, you know, especially a child, I feel like I can be an inspiration in the sense that, I thought, you know, before he died, I thought, oh, my God, if he dies, I will die. You know, I just thought there was no way that I could survive that. And I feel like I have. And, you know, it's not, it just didn't end my life like I thought it would. Um, and I feel like that there are things that I want to tell people as part of the story about the way that I heal that I think is could be useful to people. Is there a way
1: in that longing, too, that you're... Wanting other
0: people to get, how terrible it was. Um. Yeah, I think probably. I mean, I feel, you know, I feel a bit self-conscious about that. You know, just thinking about all the genocide that takes place around the world, and you know, I don't feel like this was a tragedy. I feel like it was a sad thing that happened, and and it was difficult, you know, for all of us. And it was a huge, huge loss for. I do believe it was a loss for the planet. You know, I mean, he was an amazing kid, but, um, I feel like there there are worse things.
1: Right. Well, that's a way that we, all of us dismiss our own suffering, isn't it? Uh,
0: I, I mean, I don't know what the definition true. of tragedy
1: is, but it seems like one to me.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we will agree not to split hairs on that one. Um, I want to ask you about how your grief has changed over time. Because in the first poem you read, you talked about it moving from sort of sharp to Mm. becoming dull and mundane. And Mm. it was a sort of an involuntary trade. Mm. And I want to ask you, has it shifted more since you wrote about it as becoming dull and mundane? Does it continue to shift? Is it dynamic or does it feel kind of in one
0: mode now for a while? Definitely dynamic. Uh, Definitely dynamic. And it's definitely shifted quite a bit. You know, I feel I feel pleased at this point. I look back and I was thinking about it yesterday. Wow, it's been almost seven years. Um, but as I look through my poems and I can see, you know, I look at the dates, because I, I put a date on each one, and I can definitely see the progression and I can see that there has been a, an upward trend in terms of the healing. Um, but I'm sure we're getting ready to uh, head back to Thailand, which is where my son died and where I spent the first Almost year after his great, his death, and I know that that's going to be just a whole nother wave and a whole nother chapter. And but I think it's important to, to feel that stuff. One of the things we've
1: talked about before, uh, you know, when you were on my get when you're my guest on Safe Space in the past, you talked to me about um, how much you love to talk about John and how much you feel so glad when people bring him up and talk about him. And I learned so much from you in that moment about the fear that other you know people have about not making you sad, not making bringing you down. Mm. You talked about how you're already sad. Mm. and And now, you know, two years later, I know you're about to give a poetry reading of your work. And I know one of the concerns is sort of, will I make other people mm. Mm. too sad? How do you feel about that now, this question of making each other sad and whether that's in some way bad or to be avoided?
0: I think that we all of us hold deep, deep feelings of grief in whether they're deep inside and we haven't seen them or felt them, you know, on a conscious level. I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. And, um, and I think that any chance that we have to express those, it's only good for us to get to, to vent that, to let that stuff out. So I think that when I, when I read my poems to people or people hear my story and they respond, you know, when it brings up that sadness, I really don't feel like I'm giving them my sadness. I really feel like my poems are giving them an opportunity to, to express something that they need to express. And they may not always thank you for it right in the moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, but you're saying that you're, you have such a clear, a deep value for experiencing grief and really feeling it hmm. and welcoming that. Mm-hmm. So, on that note, I'd love to hear another poem from you.
0: Okay. This one is called Yellow Cloak. The other day I was driving down a little street in the neighborhood, a shortcut, I thought, in my endless quest to save a minute or two for something, I don't know what. And I saw a tree standing, branches upraised and entirely bare. At its base around it in a spreading circle was its cloak of yellow, like a woman's garment dropped suddenly that had floated gently but so quickly to the floor. The leaves, all the same yellow, were bright and soft, but completely, hopelessly disconnected from their mother, now naked and suddenly bereft. In the rushing, frantic, kids-to-pick-up moment, when I saw that tree, I thought, that's how I felt when my son died, arms lifted, naked. What happened? Where is the warmth and beauty that I always had? where the wind whispered and the light shimmered, where the tiny infinite movements against my skin interpreted the air and darkness. Now I am only bare and bony, bark wet and cold, in the wind and rain. Why am I still standing, with all of me exposed, and winter coming? So I'd love to hear a little bit
1: more about that feeling of being exposed. What was it about
0: having a son die that left you feeling so exposed? I think just the rawness of of just feeling like crying so often. You know, the, the first few years, just trying to have a normal conversation, you know, standing on the playground or at a party or and just feeling like I was about to burst into tears. Or, you know, and, and those have come less and less frequently now, but yeah, there's just this feeling of having your, your heart so close to the your skin.
1: You talk about the ends with and winter coming. Is there a fear that something terrible is going to come, is
0: going to be added to it? I think it just was a sense of sort of hopelessness and and not really seeing any anything good coming.
1: Yes and I know you said to me that you feel in a different place even now just one year later than this Mm. poem. Would you tell Mm. me a little bit about what's different now?
0: It's, it's just good to feel like I've, I've done so much work in grieving that I can feel hopeful about things, I can feel excited about things, I can, you know, take pleasure in, in my children's accomplishments and their pleasures, and it's good to be there, you know.
1: That was my conversation with poet Catherine Murray from 2011. I also recorded an earlier interview with her in 2009 about losing a child, which you can hear at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can also listen to many other shows on subjects that are hard to talk about. And you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, please leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.